0: Blog Talk Radio <laughs>
1: Everybody. This is Sarah Eetop, welcome you to TrundleBed Tales and tonight's podcast number seventy seven is going to be all about Millbank. So before we get underway with that, let's just take a moment and do a little housekeeping. And uh, tonight's episode is going to be reading Chapter 2 of Millbank. So to make sure everybody's ready for that, I want to make sure that uh, you know a few things about the program. One is that we do podcast live. So this is just as things happen. I don't do any editing. This is just... As it is, so take me as I am, without one plea. You can also listen to the program live, or you can check it out in the archive. Either directly through the uh, through the website on my website, or on Blog Talk Radio, or you can also get it as a M three M3p p3 file for free that you can download from itunes if you are an itunes user i would appreciate a comment because that's how new people find out about uh, the show and hopefully will want to catch a listen themselves now uh, the other way you can listen while the show is live is by the telephone and you can also use that same number to call in and to make a comment or ask a question so The number is 714-242-5253. That's 714-242-5253. Or toll-free, 1-877-633-9389. That's toll-free, 1-877-633-9389. Remember to have those numbers handy and... Uh, You can always use them when we have a scheduled program of Trundle Bed Tales. And I think that wraps up our housekeeping. So, uh, tonight's episode, I am going to be looking at the next next chapter of Millbank. Now, I have been wanting to do this for a very long time. I usually do reading on either World Read Aloud Day, on National Book Day, on National Reading Month, and I didn't get it done on any of those days this spring. So I've just been saying I'm going to do it and saying I'm going to do it, and I finally got a chance tonight, and I decided to just jump on the computer while I had a chance and go ahead and read the chapter. Now, Millbank, if you are a a Laura fan, should know. This is the only novel mentioned uh, by name in On the Banks of Plum Creek. Now, there is another book, Stories of the Moorland, um, that is also in contention for that. It depends whether you consider it short stories or a novel, but uh, that's the other book that it could possibly be. But for the most part, this is the only one. And it took me, a re- I mentioned some of this at the beginning of chapter one, uh, which I recorded earlier back in 2014. I'm going to put a link to that one in the uh, note- show notes for this episode, but you can you know search for Milbank on uh, Blog Talk Radio and it'll pop it right up. Uh, but I want to kind of go over it again for people who hadn't uh, listened to that first episode or didn't want to take the time now. So uh, the author on here, I had not realized for a long time. I saw, oh, Milbank, yeah, okay, Milbank. Uh, when I'd go through and read it, and I never bothered to look it up, which I'm somewhat ashamed of, because it is an author that I know, and her name is Mary J. Holmes. Now, uh, and how I first found this out, since it did not occur to me look it up, was in Ann Romney's book. Um, she points it out. And I suddenly perked up when I heard the name because Mary J. Holmes uh, was a very prominent writer in the 19th century. She was considered a woman's writer, more of a popular writer, you know, one of those people that uh, you know serious writers of the day looked down on. But she was very well loved. She published an amazing number of books. And they're really still kind of interesting to read, and it just so happened that uh, she has a special connection for me because in another one of her books, uh, called Homestead on the Hillside, is a short story about a character named Oriana, and my great grandmother named my grandmother Oriana after that story so knowing that uh, whenever I'd go used book shopping or you know was it a garage sale or something and I saw a Mary James Holmes book I picked it up and I was sort of trying to get one on all of them and then I found the list of how many of them there were and I don't know if I have the shelf space for all of them of my other collections but uh, I do have an, a pretty decent selection of them and Mary Jane and Millbank is now one of them. Now, if you go and look on my blog, which I will link to the appropriate uh, posts in the show notes for this episode, but uh, she was so famous as there were like postcards of her home. And I w- was very excited to find one of those and put it in my collection for this. But uh I, posted it as a blog post and i had a reader respond that their parents lived very near to that house now it isn't a museum but the house well at least the half of the house uh the back half had been torn off at some point uh, but that house and a historic marker saying it was the mary j holmes house was just down the street from her folks and so she took a picture of it now so there's a a, a before and after and that was a couple of years ago but i thought that was a really great thing to get to see so uh that gets us to the story now, we'd gotten through chapter one last time. And again, if you didn't want to listen to the whole thing, uh, these uh, Mary J. Holmes books tended to be family dramas with a romance element. And I'm not exactly sure what the romance element is, but chapter one was sort of setting up the story. And that there was a ritual man, I'd have to look up what his name was, it had been a while. There was a ritual man and he had one son who was kind of a clod and then he had a uh, married a young second wife uh who and had a son by her and then she is believed to have run off now the way they put it i wouldn't be surprised to find out somebody killed her but we don't know that at this time she is thought to have run off and you know, every sign of her was taken out of the house, but he really loved this younger son, Roger. Um, but the older son had really gone through, had already gotten sort of his share of the inheritance before the the father died and had run through it basically. And so it was left with at least supposed to be left for Roger. And the wife of the first son has brought her grandson uh, to visit now that the father has died, and they're not exactly sure what's going on with the will. And there's also two, um, an older, younger person in the house who were very taken with um, this younger son uh, and tried to look after him for the sake of their mother, who they actually ...still remembered with great fondness and liked. And so that's sort of where we are. Chapter 2 Hester's advent into the kitchen was followed by a great commotion... ...and Rui forgot to pour any water upon the tea designed for Roger... ...but set the pot upon the hot stove where it soon began to melt with the heat. But neither Hester nor Rui heated it, so absorbed were they in the little bundle... ...which the former laid on the table, which began to show unmistakable signs of life... "'and vigorous babyhood by kicking at the shawl which enveloped it "'and thrusting out two little fat dimpled fists, "'which beat the air as the child began to scream lustily "'and try to free itself of its wrappings. "'The Lord have mercy upon us! What have you got?' Rui exclaimed.' While Hester, with a pale face and compressed lip, replied, a brat that some vile woman in the cars asked Roger to hold where she got out of the station. Of course, she didn't go back, and so, fool-like, he brought it here because it was pretty, he said, and he felt sorry for it. I always knew he had a soft spot, but I didn't think it would show itself this way. It was the first time Hester had ever breathed a word of complaint against the boy Roger, whose kindness of heart and great fondness for children were proverbial. And now, sorry that she had done so, she tried to make amends by taking the struggling child from the table and freeing it from the shawl which she had carried with her to the depot, never guessing the purpose to which it would be applied. It was a very pretty, fat-faced baby, apparently nine or ten months old, and the hazel eyes were as bright as buttons, Rui said, and her heart warming at once toward the little stranger at whom Hester looked askant. There was a heavy growth of soft brown hair upon the head, which had just enough curl in it to make it lie in rings about the forehead and the neck. The clothes, though soiled by traveling, were neatly made and showed marks of pains and care. Suspended about the neck was a fine gold chain to which it attached was a tiny locket with the initials LG engraved upon it, and on one of the chubby arms just below the elbow was a scar of a recently healed burn. These things came out one by one as Hester and Rui together examined the child, which did not evidence the least fear of them, but which, when Ruey stroked its cheek careless, caressingly, looked up in the face with a coaxing, cooing noise and stretched its arms toward her. Little darling, the motherly girl exclaimed, taking it from Hester's lap and hugging it to her bosom, I'm so glad it's here. The house will be merry again with a baby in it. Do you think Robert Roger will keep it? You must be crazy, Hester said sharply, when Frank, who had divided his time between the parlor and the kitchen, who had just come from the former, chimed in. Yes, he will. He told mother so. He said he always wanted a sister, and he should keep her, and mother's rowing him for it. By this, it will be seen that the strange child was the topic of conversation in the parlor as well as the kitchen. Mrs. Walter Scott asking numerous questions and Roger explaining as far as was possible that what, what was to himself a mystery. A young woman carrying a baby in her arms and looking very tired and frightened had come into the car at Cincinnati, he said, and asked to sit with him. She was a pretty dark-faced woman, with such bright black eyes, who seemed to look right through one, and which examined him very sharply. She did not talk much to him, but seemed to be wrapped up in thoughts, which must have been very amusing, as she would occasionally laugh quietly to herself, and then relapse into the same thoughtful mood. Roger thought now that she seemed a little strange, though he had no suspicions of her, and was very kind to the baby whom she asked him to hold. He was exceedingly fond of children, especially little girls, and he took this to this one readily and fed it with candy, which was, which with which his pockets were always filled. In this way, they traveled on until it began to grow dark, and they stopped at a town 50 miles or more from Cincinnati. Here, the woman, who had been growing restless, asked him to look after the baby while she went into the next car, where, she said, was a friend with whom she wished to see for a few moments. If she gets hungry, give her some milk, she added, taking a bottle from the little basket, which she had with her under the seat. Without the slightest hesitation, Roger consented to play the part of the nurse to the little girl, who was sleeping at the time, and whom the mother, if mother she were, laid, had laid upon an unoccupied seat in front. Bending close to the little round, flushed face, the woman seemed to be whispering something, then with a kiss upon the lips, as if in benediction, she went out, and Roger saw her no more. He did not notice whether she went into another car or left the train entirely. He only knew that a half hour passed, and she had not returned. Then another half hour went by, and some passengers claimed one of the seats occupied him in his charge. In lifting up the child, he had woke her, but instead of crying, she had rubbed her pretty eyes with her little fist, and then, with a baby smile, laid her brown head confidingly against his bosom and was soon sleeping again. So long as she remained quiet, Roger felt no special uneasiness about the mother's protracted absence, which had now lengthened into nearly two hours. But when the child at last began to cry, and neither candy, nor milk, nor pounding on the car window, nor his lead pencil, nor his jackknife, nor his watch had any effect upon her, he began to grow anxious. And to the woman in front, who asked rather sharply, what was the matter, and what was he doing with that child alone, he said... I'm taking care of her while her mother goes to see a friend in the next car. I wish she would come back. She's been gone ever so long. The cries were screams by this time, loud, passionate screams, which indicated great strength of the lungs, and roused up the drowsy passengers who began, some of them, to grumble, while one suggests pitching the brat out the window. With his face very red and perspiration starting out about his mouth, "'Roger arose and tried by walking up and down the aisle "'to hush the little one into quiet. "'Once he thought about going into the next car "'in quest of the mother, "'then thinking to himself that she would surely return ere long, "'he abandoned the idea and resumed his seat "'with the now quiet child. "'And so another hour went by, "'and they were nearly a hundred miles from the place "'where the woman had left him. "'Had Roger been older, a suspicion of foul play "'might have come to him long before this.' but the soul of honor himself, he believed in everybody else, and not a doubt crossed his mind that anything was wrong, and to the woman who had first spoken to him began to question him again and ask if it was his sister he was caring for so kindly. Then the story came out, and Roger felt as if a smothering, when the woman exclaimed, Why, boy, the child has been deserted. It is left on your hands. The mother will never come to claim it. For an instant, the car and everything in it turned black for poor Roger, who gasped out, you must be mistaken. She's in the next car. Sure. Hold the baby and I'll find her. There was a moment's hesitancy on the part of the woman, in fear at least she, too, might be duped. But another look at the boy's frank and ingenuous face reassured her. There was no evil in those clear blue eyes, which met her so imploringly, and she took the child in her arms while he went for the missing mother, went into the adjoining car, and the next peering anxiously into every face and not finding the one he sought. Then he came back and went through the rear car, but all in vain. The dark-faced woman with the glittering eyes and the strange smile was gone. The baby was deserted and left on Roger's hands. He understood it perfectly, and the understanding seemed suddenly to add years of discretion and experience to him. Slowly he went back to the waiting woman and, without a word, took the child from her, and letting his boyish face drop over it, he whispered, "'Your mother has forsaken you, you little one. Care for you.'" He was adopting the little poor forsaken child and was accepting this, his awkward situation. When he was done, he reported his success. There was an ejaculation of surprise and horror on the woman's part, a quick rising up from her seat to do something or tell something of the terrible thing that had transpired before their very eyes, There was a great excitement now in the car and the passengers crowded around the boy who told them the little he knew and then to their suggestions as to the ways and means of finding the unnatural parent. Roger quietly responded, I shan't try to find her. She could not be what she ought and the baby is better without her. But what can you, a boy, do with a baby? A chorus of voices asked. And Roger replied with the air of 25 rather than 14. I have money. I can see that she is taken care of. The beginning of a, a very pretty little romance, one of the younger ladies said, as the conductor appeared. He was pounced upon, and the story told to him, and suggestions made that he should stop the train, or telegraph back, or do something. What should I stop the train for, and whom shall I telegraph to? It is a plain case of desertion, and the mother is miles and miles away from, by this time, there would be no such thing as tracing her. Such things are of frequent occurrence. But I will make all the necessary inquiries when I go back tomorrow, and will see that the child is given to the proper authorities, who will either get it a place or put it in the poorhouse. At the mention of the poorhouse, Roger's eyes, usually so mild in their expression, flashed defiantly upon the conductor, while the crowd around him had been taking a t- uh, talking of faint doubt as to the practicability of taking his, the child himself had crossed his mind. His father was dead. He had his education to get, and Millbank might perhaps be shut up or let to strangers for several years to come. And what could be done with the baby? These were his sober second thoughts after his first indignant burst at finding the child deserted, and had some respectable, kind-looking woman offered to take up his charge from his hands, he might have given her up. But from the poorhouse arrangement, he recoiled with horror, remembering the sweet-faced, blue-eyed little girl with tangled hair and white milk feet upon whom he had, whom he had seen sitting in the doorstep of the poorhouse in Belvedere. She had been found in a stable and sent to the almshouse. Nobody cared for her, nobody but Roger, who often fed her with candy and apples in which there was something he could do for her than life in the dark, dreary house among the hills. And it was to just such a life, if not a worse one, the cruel conductor would soon doom the baby left in his care. If I can help it, the baby shall never go to the poor house, Roger said. And when a lady who admired the spirit of the boy asked him, have you a mother? He answered, no, nor a father either. But I have Hester. And as if that settled it, he put the child on the end of the seat farthest away from the crowd. while with an air of dignity far beyond his years, he dispersed all but the conductor who tried to dissuade him from his wild project but roger was not to be persuaded and the more there was set against his plan the more obstinately he adhered to it until the conductor gave up the contest and after inquiring roger's name and address went about his business of collecting tickets and roger was left to himself that he ever got comfortably from Cleveland to Belvedere with his rather troublesome charge was an almost miracle, and he would not have done so but for many friendly hands stretched out to help him as far as Buffalo. there were those in the car who knew of the strange incident and who watched and encouraged and helped him. But after Buffalo, he was left behind. He was totally among strangers. Still a boy like him, traveling with a baby, could not fail to attract attention, and there were many inquiries made of him as to the whys and wherefores of his singular position. He did not think it necessary to make very lucid explanations. He said, "She "'She is my sister, not my own, but my adopted sister, whom I am taking home.' And he blessed his good angel, which caused the child to sleep most of the time, as he thus avoided notice and remarks that were distasteful to him. One Occasionally, he, a thought of what Hester might say would make him a little uncomfortable. She was the only one who could possibly object. For with the great shock of his father's death, Roger had been made to feel like he was now rightful master of Milbank. His prospective inheritance had been talked of at once in the family of the clergyman who had moved from Belvedere to St. Louis and with whom Roger was preparing for college when the news of his loss came. Mr. Morrison had said to him, you are rich, my boy, you are owner of Milbank, but do not let your wealth become a snare. Do good with your money and remember that a tenth of it at least belongs by right to heaven. And even amidst the keen pain which he felt at his father's death, Roger had thought how much good he would do, and how he would imitate his noble friend and teacher, Mr. Morrison, who, from his scanty income, cheerfully gave more than a tenth, and still never lacked for food or raiment. That baby was sent direct from heaven to test his principles, he made himself believe, and by the time the mountains of Massachusetts were reached, he began to feel quite composed, except on the subject of Hester. She did trouble him a little, and he wished the first meeting with her was over. With careful forethought, he telegraphed for her to meet him, and then, when he saw her, he held the little child to her at once, and hastily told her part of his story, and felt his heart grow heavy as lead when he saw how she shrank from the little one, as if there had been pollution in its touch. I reckon Mrs. Walter Scott will ride a high horse when she knows what you've done," Hester said. When at last they were in the carriage and driving toward home, at the mention of Mrs. Walter Scott, Roger grew uneasy. He had a dread of his stylish sister-in-law with her lofty manner and her air of superiority, and he shrank nervously from what she might say. "Oh, Hester," he exclaimed, "is Helen at Millbank, and will she put her put on her biggest ways? You needn't be afraid of Helen Brown." Tain't none of her business if you bring a hundred young ones," to Millbank Hester had said, and she had said it as, as, and as she said it, it came very near going over to the enemy and espousing the cause of the poor little waif in her arms out of sheer defiance to Mrs. Walter Scott, who was sure to snub the stranger as she had snubbed Roger before her. Matters were in this state when the carriage finally stopped at Millbank, and Hester insisted upon taking the child through the kitchen door as most befitting it. But Roger said no, and so it was up the broad stone steps and across the wide Pia- piazza and into the handsome hall that the baby was carried upon her first entrance into Millbank. And that is the end of chapter two. And hopefully it will not be two years and some months before I get to chapter three. I hope that you've enjoyed this something a little different in Trundle Tales. And I hope that you'll enjoy the rest of the episodes that we have coming for you this uh, summer. I've got an episode planned on uh, how to uh, put a little magic into your Laura vacation And I have one on taking Laura trips in the off-season. I hope to have a couple uh, travel times, one on um, buckskinning. And, well, I guess I don't have the other one confirmed yet, so I shouldn't say. But we've got lots of interesting stuff coming up yet this summer on Trundle Bed Tales, the podcast. And I hope that we'll catch you around here again soon. And remember, always brighten the corner where you are.
0: (laughs) ¶¶